Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jesse Hall. Tonight I'll be telling you a story that stuck with me since my childhood, mostly because my cousins always thought it was funny to scare the youngest cousin, which meant me. They were going to scare me. So one summer around midnight, my oldest cousin Amanda said to me, Jesse, have you ever heard the story of Taily Poe? And in my youthful ignorance, I said, No, what's that about? And Amanda said, Oh, sit down, sit down. I have to tell you the story of Taily Poe. And so I got ready for a good story, and she got ready to scar me for the rest of my life. Quick sidebar before I get to the actual story. Um, the version I heard is very much PG, and there are some very, very, very different versions from the one I heard. So, let's get to it. There once lived an old hunter in the woods near a swamp with three hunting dogs. He chopped wood, he hunted in the woods, as an old man in the woods near a swamp would do. One day as he was chopping wood, he struck a small animal with his axe. The animal ran off, leaving its tail behind. Since hunting wasn't going so well, he decided to use the tail as part of a stew for supper. The three dogs and himself enjoyed the stew that night, eating their fill. As the day ended and the night enveloped everything, there came a whisper from far off in the woods. Tailypo! Tailypo! All I want's my tailypo! The dogs, of course, reacted quickly, barking, yammering, scratching at the door. The hunter, seeing this, flung the door open, sending him outside, saying, Go! Go find what that is! Their barks faded into the distance. They were out all night. Only two of the dogs came back the next morning. The old hunter was scared. For good reason. One of his best hunting dogs was gone. No trace. Nothing. He searched all day. He could not find that dog. And again, day turned to night, night turned to darkness, and again, closer to the house now, the whisper. Neither the dogs nor the old hunter were having any of this. They all went out into the night, the dogs running into the distance, the old man standing guard on the porch with his rifle, looking around for any movement. He sat on that porch all night, and as night became morning, only one dog returned. Redoubling his efforts, but being very hobbled by only having one dog now, he searched everywhere. But again, time being the bandit always is, day turned to night, night turned to darkness, and now, as they were right outside his front door, he heard it. Daily Daily All I want's my daily But his dog didn't bark. His dog did not bark. The front door opened, and the old man was petrified. He could not move from his bed. He saw a small creature walk through his front door, walk through his kitchen, walk to the foot of his bed, and crawl up on it. Big eyes, big hands, small body, saying, Daily Po! Daily Po! All I want's my Daily Po! Too afraid to move, the hunter somehow croaked out, I, I don't, I don't, I don't. I, I, I don't have it. To which Taylor Poe replied, Liar! It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my telling you stories of the old... Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. 
Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. want to welcome back all of our fantastic listeners. Hi everyone. I know, I know it's been a stressful few weeks. It always is at this time of year. But it's okay. We're here with you now. Just take some deep breaths. Put your feet up. You deserve it. If you're in traffic, do not put your feet up. Don't do that. Keep your eyes on the road. Stay focused. Keep alert. And just have a little you time. You've earned it. Or us time. Whatever. But we do want to thank all of you for coming back to the show. And thank everyone for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. It's always helpful. Yes, especially Lori. Lots of numbers, as it says here. <laughs> That's what it says. There's a bunch of numbers. There's a bunch of numbers. <laughs> and 26S4 from the UK. Thank you so much. Yeah, and we always appreciate if you go on there and leave a rating or review. We also want to encourage you to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod, or go on to our website, justastorypod.com. And there we have all the illustrations for all the episodes. Sometimes I'll do newspaper galleries if we do a lot of newspaper searching. We keep all of the sources listed there for all of our episodes, which is a lot of sources. And through our website, you can access our merchandise store where we sell things like now coffee cups, which is the most practical thing you could ever own because everyone needs coffee all the time. And you could put wine in it. I mean, when you don't need coffee, you need wine. These are facts, people. And on there, you'll also find a link to our Patreon page. And Patreon's a way to help support the show. And while you're helping support the show, you can also get fun prizes such as stickers. Who doesn't love a sticker? You're a pediatrician. You try to give a sticker to everyone. I thought everyone liked stickers. <laughs> you may have a stilted worldview, but I think the large majority of people do like stickers. There might be a bias. Yes. You can also get access to our extra episodes, Just the Stories. And those are straight from the headlines mysteries that we dive into and then argue about what we think happened a little bit. Just a little bit. Minor bickering. Today we also want to thank two new patrons. We have Caitlin Harris and Kelly Sweeney. Yay! You would like to get in touch with us in another way if you are not satisfied with all any of those outlets and you just need to talk to us because words are fun, I think, as I sit here recording them. You can call the Urban Legend Hotline, and the number for that is 512-222-3375. And you can call and leave us a voicemail about your favorite urban legend, folktale, rumor, or thing your weird aunt used to email you about. Except for that one thing. Don't Don't send us that. No, no, no. Or do. Don't show me if they do. So, back to the story at hand. It's a fun one. The story at tail. This is the story at tail. Today we are talking about the great Appalachian folktale, Telepo. Telepo. I thought you were joking when you sent this to me. I was like, that's not words. <laughs> but it is, and they're super, super fun, I think. I like this one a lot. Because it has all the trappings of like a well-constructed oral tradition story. right? The repetition and the kind of jump scare at the end, as you heard in our opening. It's a... It's very obvious how this made the rounds in the, back in the olden days. Oh, right. And then why it's still so popular today. 
So, you know, this story, you know, we heard a great version out of the beginning, but just to kind of summarize, you had this old hunter and his three dogs, and they're living out in the middle of the woods, usually in some small ramshackle cabin hovel. Yeah. And winter comes and... Jon Snow is very upset. Finally. And game and food have become much more scarce. Now, sometimes in the tale, he's chopping wood, and he accidentally cuts off the tail of a creature. And he's like, going to throw it away, and he's like, I can't waste this good meat. Tail this meat. Slimy tail, is described sometimes. And so he throws in the stew pot. Sometimes he's in the cabin, and he kind of hears a noise behind him, and without even fully looking, grabs his hunting knife and just slashes at it. And the creature scurries off, but the tail remains. And again... What do you do when you have a gross, slimy tail sitting around and you have nothing to eat? You eat the tail. It's all you can do. So, after he has enjoyed his delicious meal of tail... I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say oxtail soup is actually very good. That's true. So let's not mock him for eating the tail too much. Or we can. Whatever. Sorry if you're a vegan. Mock away. Oh, but oh, vegan. Look what happens. <laughs> so, in the night, he starts to hear a scratching starts to hear something coming and saying, Who's got my taily Who's got my taily Which is creepy and weird. Yes, and so he sends his dogs after them, one after another, and the dogs do not return. Because they're having a dog party. They're obviously out there playing poker. That's it. And smoking cigarettes. Now eventually, after the repetition of the scratching and the... The call, the creature comes in the night and demands that the man return his taily It's such a silly name for it. I love it. It's fun. Okay. It's good rhythm. Yeah. Who's got my tail? See? Where's my flesh? That's what he should say. You should just call it flesh. It's scary. Now, there was the PG version of the beginning of the show, and they're not all that way. Often the creature attacks the man, and it's alluded to that he is killed. And, of course, as all tales like this go, the townspeople say, (laughs) if you're quiet at night and listen to the wind blowing through the trees, you can hear the strange voice calling on the wind. Who's got my daily bow? It's very scary. As this is an orally past story, there are a lot of variations on it. Now, Jan Wall has a description of an African-American version of the tale. And the real difference in this is that the creature eats the old man up. And at the end it says, And some folks say it got back its taily poe. It's a very practical addition. And Joel Chandler Harris, who wrote Uncle Remus and Uncle Remus Returns, has a version of this. But this is most often cited as an Appalachian folktale. Are you going to say Appalachian the whole time? It's Appalachian, Appalachian, depends on who you ask. Tomato, tomato. Okay. You're calling the whole thing off. I say Appalachian. Okay, I'll say Appalachian from now on. Thank you. So in one collection of folktales by Leonard Roberts' Old Greasy Beard, Tales from the Cumberland Gap, published in 1954, now he cuts off and eats the tale of, quote, the awfulest critter he ever did see in his life after it emerges from a crack in the floor. 
and when it demands its taily po back all night, the man keeps sending his dogs after it. And then the creature comes back and tears the man to pieces. And the sound of the taily po can still be heard at night. But interesting part of this is the illustration of this is this monkey squirrel creature. That's that is kind of terrifying. A giant squirrel in and of itself would be really scary. Yeah, and most often it's described as more cat-like. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the wampus cat, yeah. you know, other cats from this area. So before we go on, I have a Taily Poe story. <laughs> Did you eat someone's tail? No, but my grandfather was like a poor farm boy in rural Louisiana, and he had a few cows. He was farming at the time, and this is my mom's dad. And one of the cows got out, and it wouldn't go back down the hill and get in the pen. He couldn't make it move. So he took out, like, a pocket knife he had, and he was going to, like, skin the cow's tail, like, just kind of, like, pop it on the tail with a knife. I don't know. It was, like, the 1930s. Whatever. And he accidentally cut off the cow's entire tail. And did the cow come back in the night? I want to believe it did. Moo's got my tailly pole. Maybe a taily moo. My taily moo's got it. There was an ongoing debate. My grandmother would be like, I think he ate it. <laughs> I don't think he ate it. What did he do with it? But it was like every time she told the story, she would get to the end and be like, I don't know whatever happened to it. <laughs> it's all I can think about when I read these. So now this tale is obviously tied to other similar stories and similar folk traditions. One story called Chunk of Meat... Oh, lovely. Charming. Which comes from Watauga County in North Carolina. It was published in 1948 by Richard Chase. And a little boy finds a chunk of meat outside when the family is in a similar situation as our old hillbilly cabin dwelling. Man on the mountain. So he picks up the meat from the ground and sees eyes shining out of a log and runs away. He sneaks the meat into his mother's pot on the fire and while they all are enjoying their meal they start to hear a voice from the chimney ask for its chunk of meat so that's way more intimidating than daily boo oh the creature also says it can stare through the boy can grabble his grave with big claws and sweep his grave with a bushy tail oh <laughs> chunk of meat scary so is it always like ambiguous meat or tail Sometimes it's a toe. Like a person toe? Well, good question. (laughs) So as we keep going further back in time, you have the devil's big toe. So not a person toe, a devil toe. Better. It's better. Well, it's not the devil's toe. It's how it's described in the story. And this is from Folk Tales of a Kentucky Mountain Family. An old woman and her husband happen upon a lumpy object while they're digging for potatoes and when they pull it up out of the ground they find it's not a potato but a big toe so they put it back and say that's weird that that happened no 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 wait that would be silly they call law enforcement and say we think we have a murder on our hands because we found this toe it really wasn't law enforcement okay so what do they do with the toe well they eat it okay (laughs) they're starving they have potatoes No, they found a toe. Okay, no no potatoes, just toe. Maybe one potato to go with your toe. But as they're eating it, a creature comes down the chimney and demands his toe back. Now, 
even though it's called the devil's big toe, it's the creature is very hairy and cat-like. Interesting. So you can keep going back in time with these similar stories all the way back to England and Ireland. Okay. And Europe in general. So in 1890, Joseph Jacobs published English fairy tales, and in it he has Teeny Tiny. And when this teeny tiny woman had got it in her teeny tiny churchyard, she saw a teeny tiny bone of a teeny tiny grave, and the teeny tiny woman said to her teeny tiny self, this teeny tiny bone will make me some teeny tiny soup for my teeny tiny supper. And so when she gets back, she puts it in the cupboard, and she starts hearing, Give me my bone. And as all the stories go, this is repeated several times. And she finally is like, take it. And she doesn't eat it in this story. Which I think is different, is odd, you know. She's English. She knows better. So we've got toes, we've got ambiguous bone, ambiguous hunk of meat, chunk, chunk of meat. We've got tails. What else? So as you keep going back, you can see these are tied to a group of stories often called the Golden Arm. Okay. So the story of the Golden Arm has been told for centuries across Europe, especially in Germany, France, England, Tuscany. And this plain, poor man marries a girl who has a golden arm. And he loved the golden arm more than his wife. And once she finally died, he creeps in the night and digs up her grave. He exhumes her body and cuts off her golden arm. The following night, he put the golden arm under his pillow and was just falling asleep when the ghost of his dead wife glided into the room. Stalking up to the bedside, it drew the curtain and looked at him reproachfully. Pretending not to be afraid, he spoke to the ghost and said, What have you done with your cheeks so red? All withered and wasted away. And what have you done with your rosy red lips? All withered and wasted away. And what have you done with your golden hair? All withered and wasted away. And what have you done with your golden arm? You have it! So sometimes it's a golden leg that's stolen. Sometimes it's an other golden or valuable extremity. (laughs) It could be from a child. Why would it be from a child? It's terrible. (laughs) And there's, in Texas, it's normally a silver toe. Interesting. So there was a folktale collected among the Mexican population in Austin by Miss Soledad Perez and published in the Texas Folklore Society in 1951. And in this, the poor woman kills her husband and makes a stew for guests that he has insisted on inviting. One night, months later... I'm guessing the stew is made out of him. Yes. Okay. (laughs) One night, months later, she sees a light in the distance and hears the tinkle of a bell. On successive nights, the light draws near and the bell rings louder until the woman hears her husband's voice saying, I have come for my entrails. At last, the light, the bell, and the voice come into the woman's room. And right by the bed... The husband shouts, I've got you! And the woman dies of fright. She was a murderess who served people to guest 
think it's okay that she died of fright. <laughs> She's a less sympathetic character. It's the ultimate, like, I really don't want your friends to come over. Again with the friends coming over? Like I said, the, there are versions of this tale throughout Europe, and there's a great one in Russia. In Russia? There is a story about a lazy girl who has other village girls visit her and do some spinning. One night, when Lazy Bonds boast about how she is afraid of nothing, the others tell her she must prove she is brave by going to the church past the graveyard and bringing back the icon from the gate. She does so. Poor decision. <laughs> At midnight, she returns with the icon. On the way back, she sees a corpse in a white shroud sitting on a grave. She tears off the shroud and takes it to show the girls. After they have gone to bed, the corpse knocks at the window and calls out, Give me back my shroud! Give me back my shroud! The other girls are terribly frightened, but Lazybones takes the shroud to the window and offers it to the corpse, who refuses, saying she must take it back to where she got it. Suddenly, the cocks crow and the corpse disappears. The next night, the corpse comes back again. Lazybones Father and mother try to hand it to Shroud, but the corpse says again she must take it back to where she got it. And again the cocks crow. They send for the priest, who says it might be good for Lazybones to come to Mass the next day. At Mass, a big whirlwind comes, and everyone falls to the ground, and Lazybones disappears, leaving only her braids behind. Her braids? Yes. In Mother Russia, ghost take you. I'm sure there's some symbolism to why her braids are left. I'm so curious. A symbol of youth, maybe? I think so. Frivolity? So now the Golden Arm was famously written up by Mark Twain in an essay on how to tell stories. He would often go around on the circuit telling this, quote, Negro ghost story in full dialect and with sound effects. Ooh. We're going to let you imagine that one. Ooh, I want to try it. <laughs> now, these stories are actually considered a folktale type. And it's folktale type 366, where a corpse comes back from the dead to claim what was stolen from them. Usually a body part, but as we've seen, can be clothing or an object. Now, this kind of comes from the belief that a dead man or an animal can find no rest until its physical remains are intact. That's problematic for, you know, all the animals we raise as livestock. Very true. Many unsated cow ghosts wandering around. Now, there are two main types of the story that have their morals. One against avarice. Avarice. Is it like just being greedy? Is it just like, hey, don't eat the toad, just stick with your potatoes? Or is it more like about the materialistic value, like in stories like the golden arm? It's more like the golden arm. Like the big toe in those don't necessarily fit in with the avarice because it's the other type, which is about cannibalism. Mm, that's bad. <laughs> Most people agree. Not so much on the cannibalism. Right. So like eating someone's toe or killing your husband this can really be seen in one of its earliest forms in the grim brothers story the man from the gallows oh that's gonna be a, a humdinger of a good time i just feel it late in the evening guests come to an old woman she has nothing left to eat and does not know what to cook for them she goes to the gallows 
where a dead man is hanging and cuts out his liver. She cooks it for the strangers who eat it up, and at midnight, something knocks on her little hut, and the woman opens the door. There's a dead man with a bald head, without eyes, with a wound in his body. Where is your hair? The wind has blown it away. Where are your eyes? The ravens have pecked them out. Where is your liver? You've eaten it up. Oh, I shouldn't have asked that last one. <laughs> so, the origins of Taylor Poe. First of all, why does it sound like a Teletubby's name? Well, no one knows for sure. I mean, obviously the tale is connected to this tail type and to the other stories that stem from it that we've talked about. But no one knows exactly where the Taylor Poe story comes from. It's told by a lot of different people throughout America, particularly mm-hmm. in kind of the South. It's often cited as an Appalachian tale, but there are also many African-American versions as well as Native American versions. And they frequently have different pronunciations or spellings of the name, mm-hmm. such as the Native American versions like Telipu, mm-hmm. like T-E-H-L-I-P-O. But most likely it is inspired by the above stories. And one storyteller, Chuck Larkin, has an interesting theory. And he states that in Gaelic, in means dear one, and po is a spoken abbreviation for point or tip. And so tail in po, meaning the end of my dear tail. I buy it. I like it, Chuck Larkin. I like it. And since a lot of the settlers to these areas were of Irish descent, it also kind of fits too, but it's still a big question mark. In all of these stories, you can see some really constant themes. You know, as with any good folklore, it tells us something about the society that it exists in. Here, the society being poor, rural South. You know, whether they be white mountain men, descendants of slaves, are Native Americans. So these groups would obviously have a chance to share the story among themselves and each other. And, of course, when the story goes back to any other community, it's going to mutate and change and acquire new characteristics that speak more of their particular setting. Exactly. But all of these groups have come to have enough similarities to understand the story and then, as you said, to make it their own. So themes, let's look at some of the important themes of this story. Well, there is, you know, the whole being alone in a cabin thing. That seems key. Right, that isolation, especially in the, the rural setting. You know, this is always off in a poor man's cabin or house, a hovel. They're alone in the forest or in the mountains. Except for they have their dogs. You know, and nothing bad happens to them until their dogs go away. Until their dogs are dispatched they go off to play poker let's not totally upset Peta on this episode <laughs> so you lose your last line of defense and you're made truly vulnerable right because there's that lack of these like substantial networks of people you know especially where this is set these rural areas you have miles and miles between your neighbors and also this creature is this kind of amalgamation of large predatory animals mm-hmm that would pose a danger to someone living out in the mountains. You really can get eaten by a bar bear. 
translated that for you. But I think one of the very important themes here is this being hungry enough to eat the slimy tail meat. No, it is so important because food insecurity is a huge issue, especially when you look way back when this story was being told. You know, if you're surviving kind of off the land and winter comes and you don't have enough stored up, game is kind of getting scarce, you know, what are you going to do? There was an interesting study I heard about the other day, and I wish I had looked into it a bit more, but it talked about the psychological effect of scarcity on the brain. And it showed that when people have sustained times of scarcity, that their brain actually rewires itself and starts exhibiting different neural pathways than it would normally. And it's not just food. It can be money. It can be, you know, social connections, anything like that. But when the brain is tuned in to that, it's like the higher functions fall off. So it actually does affect the way you think. Yeah, you kind of get rewired to your animal brain almost. But so this desperation can even lead to the violation of food taboos. Survival, cannibalism, etc., etc. See Dumber Party for further details. Right, and you can especially see that in like the big toe story, the chunk of meat, eating the slimy, nasty tail that you cut off some creature you didn't even see. In my mind, it's a possum tail. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> but seeing like the big toe, I mean, it's cannibalism. Right. The ultimate food taboo. Mm-hmm. But in these stories, violations of these taboos, even though it's life or death, you choose violation and it still leads to your death. Because it's something you didn't earn, maybe? Like, it's something that you didn't cultivate yourself? Well, I think it's, I think it's violating your cultural norms. Mm-hmm. So... Let's talk a little bit more about the cultural norms in this setting. I think that we need to get a little bit better acquainted with the hill-dwelling people of Appalachia. What say you? No, definitely. You know, the idea of a hillbilly or these kind of mountain men is so stereotyped in our modern world. So often Appalachia is characterized as a land of hillbillies. Where there's poverty, depression, loneliness, ignorance the west virginia hillbilly is pictured as a kind of degenerate character whose chief occupation is making moonshine wearing no shoes dirty ragged clothes a ragged hat with a pointed crown and is depicted sleeping near his moonshine still or sitting on the porch of his little shack while his woman does the work Oh, those lazy country bumpkins good for nothing a lot of them exactly so henry caudill who is an author from this region, described hillbillies in the Cumberland Plateau of Kentucky, saying, The illiterate son of illiterate ancestors, cast loose in an immense wilderness without basic mechanical or agricultural skills, without the refining, comforting, and disciplining influence of an organized religious order, in a vast land wholly unrestrained by social organization or effective laws, compelled to acquire skills quickly in order to survive, and with a Stone Age savage as his principal teacher. From these forces emerged the mountaineer, as he is to an astonishing degree, even to this day. So, you know, he's just suggesting that these people have are just are the stereotype. Mm-hmm. That they truly are like that. And I think that there is a tone of like, and what else can you expect to his description? 
like oh they're the illiterate sons of illiterate ancestors and they don't have even basic skills and there's no organized religion like look at their circumstances how can you expect them to be any better than cavemen they're just trash you're just trash they're not trying to do any better and so this brings us to a discussion of my new favorite book my newest favorite book today today which is called white trash 400-Year Untold History of Class in America by Nancy Eisenberg. Professor LSU, just saying. (laughs) Pause, go read it. Like, seriously, this is one of my most hardcore pause, go read it recommendations in a while. It's fantastic. It's gigantic. A tome. It is a tome. It's a 400-year history, let's remember, but oh my God, it's so good. We're going to be relying on a lot of her research throughout this episode. So, in White Trash, we learn that America was not always the paragon of social equality that it is now. But it's the land of equal opportunity. Yeah, maybe that's just a little bit of a story, but we'll go, we'll come back to that. There was a firmly entrenched British ideology that established a rigid class system with very limited social mobility. And that class system did not magically vanish into the ether after the Declaration of Independence was signed. But it said all men are created equal, except those, those guys. guys <laughs> and those ladies, and really just us. Just we mean each other. We mostly just mean each other. So there were very well-entrenched beliefs about poverty. The poor were an unfavored population, and they were thought of as waste or rubbish people that was disposable and ready for exploitation. In 1630, John Wright wrote... The planter's plea. Colonies out to be immunitaries or sinks of state to drain away the filth. I was kind of surprised to see the term trash mm-hmm. has been used for that long. Mm-hmm. Rubbish. So colonies would seem to the English who are annoyed with all of this trash to be the perfect place to send it. Just send them there. Let's just... Ship. Like a landfill. Let's just ship them there. So they do. <laughs> Because this is the 1630s when this idea is manufactured. And we can give them work and, you know, through cultivating the land, they'll cultivate a sense of self and self-reliance and they'll grow up to be humans because they're not now. And then we get Hacklut. And Hacklut has so many feelings and thoughts about trash. Oh, does he? Oh, does he? And he says, America required waste people to cut down trees, beat the hemp, Gather honey, salt the fish, dress the animals. Dress the animals? Dress them out like you dress a deer out. Butcher. Oh, not like, not like put a hat on no, them. No, we're killing more animals. Oh, okay. Go with it. Dig the earth for minerals, raise olives and silk, and sort the pa- and package bird feathers. Not sure about the bird feathers. I think he just wanted to kill more animals. The bird feathers were all from cage-free, <laughs> pasture-raised chickens who voluntarily gave up their feathers. I don't need these anymore. This is in Hawaii. Come on. That's actually kind of how they did it there. But they pictured the opportunity to box up and send off their waste people, paupers, vagabonds, convicts, debtors, and other, quote, lusty young men. Lusty young men. Lusty young men. In England, the poor and homeless were, as he puts it, ready to eat up one another. A little cannibalism there. Mm Mm-hmm. They were idle and unused and ready to be put to work. And a great example of how the English thought of these poor waste people. Isn't a folktale referred to as 
Lubberland. Lubberland, like Rubberland, but with an L. I was thinking like Disneyland, but not as much fun. All right. So in this, you have our titular character, Lawrence Lazy, born in the county of Sloth, near the town of Neverwork. Laying on a little thick there. They're so clever. So literal. In the Lubberland or the Isle of Lazy is where normal men lack the will to work. And Lawrence was a, quote, heavy lump who sat in the chimney corner and dreamt his days away. And his dog was so lazy that he had to lie his head against the wall to bark. So what was it about Lubberland that made it a place of sloth? Oh, it was contagious. Sloth was contagious? Of course. You could get the lazy on you? Yeah. And then you'd be lazy too? Right. He could even put his masters under the spell. Oh, no. Why did he have masters? Why were there even masters in Lubberland? They would, I guess, come across it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But like, what would this Disney ride be like? Welcome to the new Disney Park Lubberland. (laughs) Take a nap. We'll watch the children. I'm on board. (laughs) I was thinking it's like, it's like La La Land with singing occasionally. Muttered singing. Uh, It's like Pearl Jam. Yes, exactly. It's grunge. It's just grunge. So North Carolina became known as Poor Carolina. It was a swampy refuge of the poor and landless, a troublesome sink of America. Everything's a sink. A sink. I guess they didn't have toilets. Oh, maybe. They didn't have sinks. I guess it's just like a place things go down. No, I think it means like a sinkhole. Yeah. So each of the different colonies in America definitely took on a different personality because they were all founded for different reasons. And North Carolina just sort of became a sink. (laughs) It was regarded as poor Carolina, and it was this swampy refuge for the poor and landless. And they said it was the sink of America. It was resistant to the force of commerce and civilization, populated by useless, quote, lubbers. The Isle of Lazy must be off the coast. (laughs) Blackbeard would take offense. But it stood out as a dangerous refuge of waste people and the spawning ground of the degenerate breed of Americans. A degenerate breed of Americans. Yes, we're going to hear that over and over again. There was this fear that these waste people were breeding at such a rate and creating their own new breed of humans. Quickly. They did it like rabbits. Everyone clutch your pearls. Very scary. Many believe that class structure was tied to geography and rooted in the soil. Early ethnologists like William Byrd said that the inferior and mismanaged land bred inferior and ungovernable people. So swampy North Carolina leads to swampy people. So just by being in this area, by being in the rough land that planters, the planter class, Mm -hmm. would not necessarily want, Mm -hmm. it just made them worse people. Right, because you become, you are what you farm in this period of time. I, I am nothing <laughs> because I farm nothing. In 1780, Benjamin Franklin warned his grandson that people were divided into two sorts of people. Those who lived comfortably in good houses and those who are poor and dirty and ragged and vicious and live in miserable cabins and garrets. And if they are idle, they must go without or starve. Yes, that just like shows that sentiment at the time that the poor were worthless. 
They were expendable. Even from England, just ship them over there. It's fine. They can go cut the trees down and make it a no longer savage place. Oh, savage place. Civilize it. Let's let's uh, refer to the Jersey Devil episode here. Go learn uh. more about the savage threat that the lands of America posed and how that worked on the imagination of the Puritans. Did a lot of work. But also that these people were just, just hopeless. Like they could never come out of this. They were poor and they were always going to be poor and they would either figure out how to feed themselves or they would die. And that was just the way of it. Or create a new breed of terrible low-class Americans. Who would also die if they couldn't feed themselves. It was a very optimistic tone. He used it for his presidential campaign, which is why he was never president. I didn't know he ran for president. I don't think he did. You're just telling stories. It's fake news. (laughs) So Jefferson had, had thoughts. Jefferson had thoughts on everything. So Jefferson was interested in the squatter. And a squatter was like a landless migrant who sort of lived off the land and didn't belong to any formal community. They rarely attended church or school and remained this sort of poster child for po people. Lower class rural America meant that you were landless. Right. And these squatters are people that would go and literally squat on the land. That was not really claimed yet, especially moving out west to do this. Mm -hmm. Into the more remote areas, like in the mountains and things. And that was really their only chance to have any kind of social mobility. Well, they actually had literal mobility. They had to keep moving all the time because they could be chased off at any given point whenever the land was co-opted by a formal recognized group of people. So squatters became this political trope. And they were associated with five different traits. Crude habitation, a boastful vocabulary. What's wrong with that? (laughs) Nothing. Nothing at all. A distrust of civilization and city folk. Instinctive love of liberty and degenerate patterns of breeding. Oh, that's such a lovely description. (laughs) Well, I keep coming back to this. They're very afraid of their, their breeding. They're just making more of these people. But they had some good qualities, too. Squatter would welcome anyone into his cabin. They were generally great storytellers, which means they're good people in my book. And they became this kind of iconic common man. The common man. And this was sort of caricatured or realized or linked with, maybe, the Jacksonian America. This was the the child of Andrew Jackson's wild hair. Because he's old hickory. He is old hickory. He would like challenge everyone to duels. It's like how he moved up in the ranks. That man's crazy. He crazy. (laughs) That man is crazy. There's a story about some cheese and Andrew Jackson that I need you to find out about. Like some dairy farmers in a different state sent him this giant cheese. Giant cheese. And it was the source of so much ire around the White House because he didn't know what to do with it. And he's literally an old single man. His wife has died. No kids. Like, it's him in the White House with his cheese. His wife that he stole from another man. That harlot. That's for another time. He left the cheese for Martin Van Buren when he left office. And it was, like, rancid. And it was, like, I mean, it was giant. Like, it took a tugboat to deliver it. It's this great story about cheese. Anyway. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that story. There's a dollop about it. Go find it. They talk about it for like two hours. 
But no, this is like one of those defining moments in American history where the common man is like becomes that political trope. Tool. Very much so. These tools, these people, the common man, were really put into skilled use around the time of the Civil War. It's like we have learned how to work this machine. Now, there's a bit of a perception problem. A bit? um, Surrounding the South at this time. People said that dirt poor Southerners living on the margins of plantation societies were sand hillers were clay eaters, which I have questions about. Clay eater. What is a clay eater? I can answer that one. I'm not sure the other one. This is completely my assumption. It's most likely referring to pica. So that is when someone that is iron deficient, so anemic, and that would especially be poor rural people without a lot of meat or iron in their diet. Who needed to eat more toes. Exactly. People with pica eat non-food items and kind of chew on it. Oh. It's like nowadays, a lot of times it's ice. Okay. But you still do see some people eating clay or dirt. And that is possibly, maybe, where this term comes from. Possibly, maybe. And I think if one person, like one Yankee, one time went to visit someone in the South and passed by one person eating dirt or clay, he would come home, tell about it, and it would be true forever. Well, that's all it would take is one writer to see it. It doesn't mean everyone's doing it. Right. So I can see that. So they were... Quote, a diseased breed, a degenerate spawn of a notorious race. There was a kind of pervasive belief that there was actually a set of physical defects that could be associated with a poor Southern underclass. Some Northern Republicans believed that slavery had directly contributed to the degeneration, the white trash in the South by monopolizing the land and depriving the poor of a chance to farm and develop self-reliance. Franklin was also aboard that boat. Oh, yeah. The land makes the person. Everybody needs their own tract of land, and that will make them good people. And Oh, but that slavery was this bad example that was being set mm-hmm. for these poor, low-class... Simpletons. Simpletons. Yeah. So George Weston wrote Poor Whites of the South in 1865, and he said that the people down there who were poor were sinking deeper and more hopelessly into barbarism with every seceding generation. Barbarism. Right, they're barely human. They were the product of bad blood and vulgar breeding, characterized by the pervasiveness of white trash in the city on the hill. Class was congenital and inescapable. It was passed on like any other trait, like red hair. You were born trash and you didn't change. Like you were Born Born poor white trash. And you'll die poor white trash. Yeah, I've heard that one. In American literature produced up north around the time, there were themes like the South was a cesspool of degradation and ignorance, which is kind of hard to come back from. Well, let's just say they weren't exactly publishing the nicest things down south either. They weren't publishing anything. They didn't know how to read. Didn't you listen to the previous Uh, characterization we just heard? You're right. My stereotype tells me that. Yeah, right. So, around this time, eugenics was kind of a thing. Oh, good. Right. So, you have people who want to understand eugenics, but don't yet understand, you know, genes. And so, you get some really interesting theories, like the education of the blood. 
which was detailed in an essay at 1837. Blood must be trained and educated generation after generation, must accumulate the receptivity as the Anglo-Saxon race has done. Ah, the great Anglo-Saxon race. Neither of us have maybe any Anglo-Saxon race to speak of. We are degenerate and we're breeding and we're breeding. Oh, no. So, you know, we kind of talked about early ideas of evolution in the Bigfoot episode. And this fits in. People thought that you could learn things or develop traits and you would pass the things you learned in life on to your offspring through blood. So what was the other guy's name? Not Darwin. Lamarck. So this is kind of Lamarckian thinking. In a way, in a way. Okay. But this meant that a nation only had as much of a chance to succeed as was allowed by the finite bounds of their bloodline. Man, American Australia are screwed. Yeah, right? So the upper class people were encouraged to choose mates in the same way that they might choose a horse, allowing children to inherit these desirable characteristics and improving the nation as a whole. This was referred to as marital hygiene. Marriages were considered to be hygienic if both partners were obviously of the same race, of the same class. They both had clear skin, good teeth, and well-formed, vigorous bodies. I'm going to use that as a pickup line. I have clear skin, good teeth, and a well-formed, vigorous body. It sounds like so tawdry compared to the rest of it. It's perfect for your Tinder profile. Absolutely. Please make that. And screen cap it. So here's a quote from a vintage asshole. Noble sires, we fondly think, only to be surpassed by us. Their noble sons, what reverence we revert to our parents' stock. With what pride we talk of blood. With what jealousy we guard against its contamination. So he's saying like, oh, our fathers were amazing. Our forefathers. And we are better than them. How lucky are we? Because we've been paying attention and keeping our bloodline clean. Except for those people. (laughs) Meanwhile, deep in the heart of Texas, Sam Houston is espousing his views on why Texas is the greatest place that ever existed in the history of the world. Well, I mean, you can't argue with him. (laughs) I'm fond of it. But he says, every Texan has imbibed the principles from our ancestry. He is kindred to his blood and spurred on by his superior intelligence and unsubduable courage. Other people praise Texas as the purest flowering of the Anglo-Saxon race. Yeah. Is that because they killed everyone else? Yes. Yes, Mm, there was an exterminating war against the Comanche and the Cherokee. The red man was doomed to utter an entire extinction. So why not help Mother Nature along? Sorry, your forebears. So, as someone who is a red man-ish, I am very pleased that Sam Houston was not right. So, we've got this obsession with blood. We've got this obsession with the bloodline, the pedigree, keeping everybody separate, maintaining the status quo. Nervous Nellies maintaining the status quo. And before this time, there had been this pervasive belief that the squatter could be an agent of power that helps the ruling class. All right, that's what Jackson believed. Those were his and his people's thoughts. Yes, but around this time, he began to be seen as a problem. He was always a problem. Not Jackson. Well, Jackson was. <laughs> but the pioneer in general. It lost its mystique. And some believe that the 
degeneration was forced upon this group by slaveholding oligarchs. Others saw this as the pinnacle of a sad evolution. This group was no longer capable of matching the progress of the rest of the race because of mistakes in mate choices and breeding habits. Henry David Thoreau looked at the South and said, that there, good sir, is a rotting corpse. I never liked that guy. (laughs) Harriet Beecher Stowe had one of her characters declare, there should be a hunting parties got up to chase them down and exterminate them just as we do rats in regard to white trash. And there were a lot of characteristics that onlookers used to describe this clay-eating, white trash, squatting crackers, which apparently that term is also several centuries old. Crackers? like They're like corn crackers, like Jimmy Crack Corn and I don't care. That's a maybe that's where it's from. No one's 100% on that. You know what else nobody knows? Like the origin of is Hoosiers. I know. How does no one know that? (laughs) But they were often described as an unnatural complexion, ghastly yellowish white, the color of yellow parchment, Cotton-headed ninny muggins. <laughs> Not ninny muggins. You made that up. Cotton-headed or flaxen-headed. Cadaverous, bloodless look. Resembling albinos, which they often compared them to albinos. The whitest of white people, and they're still not white enough. And often tallow-faced. Mothers were wretched specimens of maternity. Which is the best insult ever. And they would often feed their children clay. Okay, so here's the most important thing I've learned this week. Are you ready? I'm so ready. This is a really big deal for me. I learned the origin of the word tacky, which is a word I use ad nauseum. I love the word tacky. But it apparently was a term used to describe poor white people (laughs) that were considered to be part of a tacky race. A tacky was a degenerate horse breed that lived in the Carolina marshlands. Apparently wild and native to the area. I looked it up and Can't it be says native. that. Not it native. There are no so native horses. That's like, wrong. All the horses are brought over by. So were all the white people. So I guess it makes sense. <laughs> some cotton headed ninny muggins wrote that. So there were in the South some progressives. We cannot forget Three. the progressives. in this. There were progressives in the South. And they said, you're right. Race is a terrible criteria for slavery. It makes good. sense. Good. Okay. No slavery. Excellent. Clearly, habits, disposition, and character should be the key determining factors in Wait. determining who should be a slave and who should not. Oh, so they're not anti-slavery. No, no, no. no. So they should just enslave the poor, stupid white people oh my as God. well. <laughs> yeah, that's the Southern progressive. Progressives. In the 1800s. Yay. Hooray. And then, you know. We're, of course, joking. I know they're anti-slavery people. <laughs> So then we get the Dred Scott decision, which says, like, no slavery forever. Rights granted in the Constitution only apply to white settlers descended from the original founders of America. Glad that was overturned. Nancy Eisenberg White in White Trash has a title, which I love. She says, the Civil War as class warfare. And I think that's a really nuanced and interesting way of looking at this conflict and really take stock of the social factors that led up to this abominable event. So Jefferson Davis wrote in 1853, You have shown yourself in no respect to be the degenerate sons of our fathers. It is true you have a cause which binds you together more firmly than your fathers. 
They fought to be free from the usurpations of the British crown, but they fought against a manly foe. You fight against the offscourings of the earth. By offscourings of the earth, he was referring to Yankees. Right, because the southern slave-holding class, the upper class, had to get the rest of the South on board. They couldn't say, hey, we're fighting a war so we can keep our slaves because all the people that didn't have slaves, there's no reason to support that. So they had to come up with another reason. And this is the origin of why people say, Civil War wasn't about slavery. It's about states' rights. States' rights. Lies. That's a story. That's just a story. But that's not what was told to our clay-eaten, sandhill-dwelling white trash. No, no, no. They were told that they were fighting for a noble cause, and they had to get these Yankee aggressors who wanted to uproot the Southern way of life, which was working out so well for them in the first place. They wanted to just destroy it, and we couldn't let that happen because this was this land was our land, this land was our land, this land was not their land. Basically, Yankees were inferior, not Anglo-Saxon stock. That's just not possible. So they were not Anglo-Saxon. Clearly, they were bogs and fins, which is an allusion to Ireland. And, you know, the Irish are not the same as Anglo-Saxons, apparently. And those people were sent here because they weren't wanted. They were trash. They were sent here just to get them out of Europe. Which was true, but so were the Southerners. But in this story, in this version of the story... I mean, the upper planter class came to establish their wealth. They were borderline imperial. They were Southern gentlemen, staking out claims in the new world, forging a new way of life. Yeah. So, there was this idea that the man that would not take his place as the ruler of the lesser races must not have the same genetic fortitude as those who would. And one senator named Hammond in 1858 said, there must be a class to do the menial duties to perform the drudgery of life with fewer skills and a low order of intellect. So they were owning it a little bit. As the story goes in the South, Northern whites had been corrupted by taking on menial jobs and mimicking the waste people at the bottom of society. Instead of designating a specific race or class of people to do those jobs for them. There were arguments that the North was trying to engender class warfare on the South and upset the balance of power and ruin them in the same way that they were ruining themselves. As the war waged on, raged on in the South, began to be known as a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. And that's because the draft was very favorable to the moneyed men of means in the South. Right, because if you were a planter with like 20 or more slaves, you were exempt. And you could also pay people to go fight in your steed if you had money. Mm-hmm. But in the rest of the South, people originally from 18 to 35 could be drafted. Yeah, and then expanded to 50. So in the North, there was a belief that the poor white Southerners had just been duped into fighting this war. Which they kind of were. And they needed to be rescued. These poor, poor, simple Southerners. You just don't know what's good for them. And also there was a belief in the North that the Spanish were responsible for slavery. I don't know. That one's weird. No history to back that up. This was not an Anglo-Saxon institution. 
never. It's, that's there was lots of writing, but in the South, the aristocracy kind of thought the poor white people had been duped too. Everyone was pulling the wool over these guys, and they were really worried that they were going to catch on. In sort of the same way that they were afraid of slave uprisings, they at least advised Southerners in power to watch and control the lower class and to only permit them to have as little political liberty as we can without degrading them. The planter class had been born to rule. They were the representative blood of the South, and they could not allow these lower classes to get out of hand. Eventually, they did kind of start to catch on, and you'll see sentiments like this one from an Alabama recruit during the Civil War who said, They think all you are fit for is to stop bullets for them. You're betters who call you poor white trash. I had no idea that term was that old. I know, me neither. But in the North, white trash got a makeover, son. <laughs> so they weren't just those poor people we needed to help? No, they had a certain honest cachet about them because of one honest Abe Lincoln. He was born in Kentucky, but he was considered too common to be a real Southern gentleman. He was called a mudsill, and a mudsill along with a clay eater and a sand hiller and a cracker and white trash is just another insult. So many insults. So many insults. But a mudsill was someone who was like mired in the mud, got their hands dirty, but was not upwardly mobile, not the ruling class. But in the North, you have this kind of like universally acceptable and just cause. You have like wanting to end slavery and preserve the Union, which are two things that would be very high on my priority list were I to make one as things I would go to war for. And so... When the lower class came to the aid of the upper class, who had been making all the decisions, they were united in a new way. And mudcillery kind of became this badge of honor, this thing Southerners said about Northerners that they could all rally around in a semi-ironic fashion. To be a mudsill was to reject the aristocracy and embrace the common man, you know, the common man, the one we still hear about in politics all the time today i find it interesting like there's definitely some ties to those ideas of like the noble savage mm-hmm. like this honest man that's just closer to the earth that knows the truth and knows the real way we should all be living but septi's white even better thank goodness <laughs> so there was a general james garfield and he said that mud were the backbone of the union they were those who rejoice that God has given them strong hands and stout hearts who were not born with silver spoons in their mouth. These are honest folks. These are good folks. Good folks. Real people. But as the cause in the South lost steam, the divide between wealthy and poor became more conspicuous. The North embraced the working man and pitied the idiots in the South who just didn't get it. It seemed like they didn't have the intellect to understand what was being done to them. And no, so now we have our noble, savage, working man, northerner, and we're getting this pitied southerner who's being used by the social elite. And this pity would kind of calcify and turn into prejudice as Reconstruction began. 
and it would continue to define the lot of the Appalachian region and the South for years and years to come. We'll see the pity play out. You will see this weird empathy for the lower class Southern man continue. But the importance of class to the agrigarchs in the South was definitely weaponized by the Yankees. And so there are a few instances that I thought were really interesting. And one of those is Order Number 28, which was issued by General Benjamin Butler in New Orleans. And it declared that any woman showing disrespect to a Union soldier would be treated as a prostitute. That sounds like an excuse. <laughs> I think it sounds terrible. And then there's also Order Number 76 that said that anyone not giving an oath of allegiance would have their properties confiscated and or destroyed. And this allowed people to go into the homes of the wealthy that were left behind and confiscate symbols of wealth and power and effectively rob them of their station. Yeah, they were looting. <laughs> yeah, they were. I mean, but one of the most storied examples of this is Nero's Ball. Nero's Ball is an amazing story. And so this occurred in Columbia in South Carolina. And Brevet Major General Hugh Judson Kilpatrick invited all of the local Southern Bells or white aristocratic women to a party oh how nice of him that sweet sugar will be there it was a very strongly worded invitation as in you must attend we'll be there and they were forced to go to dance with the union officers and at this time the union soldiers completely destroyed and burned the town charming <laughs> and there was a union chaplain halleck armstrong who called the Civil War the war against the aristocracy. In order to truly change the South, he insisted there needed to be increased opportunities for poor white trash. War would knock off the shackles of millions of poor whites whose bondage was really worse than the Africans. Not true, one, but also really interesting for someone to be writing about this at the same time, when the cause of ending slavery is obviously so sympathetic and has a pretty universal acceptance, unless you are a slave owner, you'd be acknowledging that anybody's got a rough lot compared to African enslaved people. And then those ideas of eugenics keep coming back. The idea of breed and this new, disgusting, terrible breed coming about from the South, coming out of the mud. So some scholars of evolution stated that there was an inherent biological difference between the races. Wait, stop. So people still think that. Well, right. And just in case you're listening and you think that, you're wrong. Um, I love you. You're pretty and smart. You is kind, you is smart, you is important, all those things. But there's not. <laughs> That's bullshit. That's just a story. Continue. But people thought that no matter what they did, no matter what laws they passed, no matter how much they helped these people, it would not matter because of their deficient cerebral development. So eugenics provide this like naturalized justification for class and race. It was science. Science, you see. Or it was God. You see. It's science, just like phrenology and astrology. Yeah. Yeah. So... By getting rid of the ruling planter class in the South through the Civil War, what 
began to kind of be the mascot for the South was the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, the most defective among the white trash people. We've removed the iconic image of Rhett Butler and put in his place Jed Clampett. Yeah, we go from that linen-wearing planter, Southern gentleman. Oh, wait, wait, I can do better. We go from Colonel Sanders to the guy eating KFC in his pickup truck. Aww. That's what we do. So these people reminded the population at large, the, the good population, the good people, that trash existed, which was offensive to their delicate sensibilities. So Southern elites weaponized this threat of waste people and made it a formal part of their agenda that they needed to resist the spread of this trash. The only way of doing this was to resist the Northern agenda during Reconstruction. In order to stop the spread of waste people, you had to stop the spread of Northern ideals. Right, and we kind of talked about that some in our Needleman episode. We talked about the kind of founding of the KKK, and a lot of that was rooted in it. You know, they did not want the lower class whites realizing that they had something in common with these new freedmen. They didn't want them working together. Well, and what's really terrible and probably really undermines this happening is the North had a smear campaign against the poor white Southerner as well. And it was weaponized and politicized in a different way because they were fighting for the suffrage of black men at this moment. And it was really convenient argument and one that still holds water in a way to say things like, why should the government disenfranchise the humble, quiet, hardworking Negro and leave the North vulnerable to the vote of the worthless barbarian, the ignorant, illiterate, and vicious poor white. Right, so they're continuing to separate themselves and to say, okay, well, we're still better than you. (laughs) You're still this low, poor class that has been freed along with the slaves. Good for you. You're welcome. You may thank us later. Please don't put your feet on my floor. You may not come in. And they're also sowing divisions between lower class whites and the newly newly emancipated enslaved people from the South by saying like, oh, well, they they are more deserving. The freedmen are more deserving of the vote than these waste people. And so that was seen in the kind of voting loss mm-hmm. that we talked about also in that episode. So, you know, more science to oh, go along ooh, with science. things. Oh, mm-hmm. science. Yay, science. Yeah, during Reconstruction, they found that while poor whites may have come from Anglo-Saxon stock, they had degenerated into an idle, ignorant, and physically and mentally degraded people. The researchers, and I use that term lightly, firmly urged it was time to see whether intelligence was a specific racially inherited trait or not. Oh, that's... It's not. It's not. It's not. It's not. Charming. Charming. And more charming. The key term during this time... Ooh, we get a new one? We get a, we get a new one. Hooray. Um, That will be the linchpin of all of our arguments about why Yankees are bad and... Things will get worse if we do what they say. Is mongrel. Ooh. Mongrel. The Republican policies that would usher in a mongrel republic were imminent, the Democrats warned. 
Democrats mean Southerners at this moment. This was the narrative. Ill-bred men of suspect origin would assume power, and then the virtue in the government would diminish. And then when those policies were set in place, the integrity and virtue of the general population would also diminish. All very logical, you see. There are two major sects of villains. There was the carpetbagger. Uh, so the men from the north that came down with their carpet bags. Yes, yeah, those tacky things. And then you have the scallywags. Ah, the scallywags. Now those, those are worse than the carpetbaggers because they are men who are born in the South but forget their raisin and run off after these new northern ideals they bring down here in them carpetbags. Sorry. Put the men julep down. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. It's real easy for me to go Southern. <laughs> but yeah, so the scallywag was a Southern man who agreed with the North or sympathized with the Northern cause. They were described as vagabond stock, which was a term used by drovers to describe the mean, lousy, and filthy kind that are not fit for butchers or dogs. It's a horse breed. Everybody is horses. <laughs> but they are just constantly compared to animals. Mm-hmm. So the scallywag in this way was made into trash. And it became clear that no matter what kind of appearance they cultivated or how high they rose or how much wealth they accrued they could still be trash on the inside so it became something you could mask but never rid yourself of to be trash in the blood Mm-hmm. but there were very interesting divisions in the trash taxonomy according to william goodell frost the poor white was a fully evolved anglo-saxon who had degraded and was experiencing a de-evolution while the mountain white was one who had not yet evolved he is our contemporary ancestor he exclaimed so the hillbilly is the missing link yes. we found the missing yes. link yes his name a is few earl episodes late. his name is earl so he said that he has a vigorous unjaded nerve prolific and patriotic man full of the blood of the spirit of 76 Mountain folk were the trunk of the American family tree. However, most other Americans did not agree with this characterization of the mountain white. And the idea of any kind of social equality or social mobility made people real nervous. And so they believed that accepting these people, mixing with these people, would promote the degradation of the pure white American blood through the mixing of class and race. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. And so, you know, this is after the Civil War. This is Reconstruction. We've kind of talked about it before. This is a time of just upheaval. So during the Reconstruction, Andrew Johnson expressed grave concerns over the dilution of privilege, which might occur if it was extended beyond its current scope. In his veto message regarding the Civil Rights Act of 1866... He cited that the law extended rights to an outrageous number of groups. I mean, can you believe it included the Chinese of the Pacific States, Indian subjects to taxation, the people called gypsies, as well as entire race designated as blacks, people of color, Negroes, mulattoes, and persons of African blood? I mean, this needs to be vetoed now. This is why he's regarded as the worst president ever. Not anymore. We'll see if that changes. We'll see. Stay tuned. So he made it clear that he disapproved of anything, anything which might grant any kind of tacit approval to interracial marriage. 
that was a problem. And you see things like this happening all over now that these people are no longer slaves. We must guard our loins against them. And so you see like the Order of the White Camellia in Louisiana, that charming old Southern institution, which formed in order to protect white blood and the virtue of white women. And if you just need to hear more about that in the KKK, there's a three hour and something episode on it. You just go back in time. Yes, go learn all about the prevention of the production of bastard and degenerate progeny, which was the goal of the Order of the White Camellia. The Supreme Court in Georgia actually ruled in 1869 that the court had the right to dissolve interracial marriages. So those that had already occurred and they classed amalgamation or the mixing of races with incest or the marriage of idiots, which was also illegal at the time. Any abhorrent marriage, in quotes, threatened to drag down the superior race to the level of the inferior. So this is, again, mirroring that eugenic logic. With that said, let's take a break. Yeah. Let's take a break from this and talk about something that really characterizes how the North saw the South. Tell me. And it also definitely ties in with our stories. So the New York Times ran an article on March 9th of 1876, describing an event that had occurred a few days later. And the article was titled, Flesh Descending in a Shower, an Astounding Phenomenon in Kentucky, Fresh Meat Like Mutton or Venison Falling from a Clear Sky. I'm sorry, I beg your fucking pardon. (laughs) So remember, this is during Reconstruction. This is when... There is lack of food. There is lack of resources. People are starving. All so the manna things from heaven. Yeah, okay. I mean, maybe so. But also, like the characterizations we've talked about, and this story just fits it so well because okay. on last Friday, a shower of meat fell near the house of Ellen Crouch, who lives some two or three miles from the Olympian Springs in the southern portion of the county. This is in Kentucky. Covering a strip of ground about 100 yards in length and 50 wide, Miss Crouch was out in the yard at the time engaging in making soap, when meat, which looked like beef, began to fall around her. The sky was perfectly clear at the time, and she said it fell like large snowflakes. The pieces, as a general thing, not being much larger. Than, than snowflakes? Yes. Meat snowflakes. It's a miracle. So the article goes on to say that two gentlemen who tasted the meat. No, no gentleman should taste the meat. No, no gentleman tasted that meat. I'm sorry. No. Expressed the opinion that it was either mutton or venison. Thanks for clearing that up, Earl. Other articles. A local butcher who tried a piece, quote, declared that it tasted neither like flesh, fish, or fowl. It looked to him like mutton, but the smell was a new one. I'm sure it was. I'm sure shower meat has its own smell. Now Crouch said, When the flesh began to fall, I saw a large piece strike the ground close by me with a snapping-like noise when it struck. The largest piece that I saw was as long as my hand and about half inch wide. It looked gristly, as if it had been torn from the throat of some animal. <gasps> Another piece that I saw was half round in shape and about the size of a half dollar. Miss Crouch said that she was impressed with the conviction that it was either a miracle or a warning. Oh, well, clearly. 
She goes on to say that the cat was not concerned and quickly began to eat it, quote, immediately gorging himself with a public breakfast so unexpectedly tender to him. No, I'll tell you what Miss Crouch said. Miss Crouch said, and that cat, he just came over there and he ate it. He didn't even care where it came from. As big as my hand, like, see a see? Well, one hunter said that it must be bear meat because of its greasiness. Was he Greg? Greg from the Bigfoot episode? <laughs> Maybe so. Okay. So in New York Times, what I, I hope is a satirical piece, <laughs> offered an explanation. A terrible suspicion has since grown up that the shower actually consisted of finely hashed citizens of Kentucky. No shit. Who had been caught in a whirlwind while engaging in a little difficulty with Bowie knives and strewn over their astonished state. This sounds like a tall tale. This sounds like Pecos Bill riding the tornado. This sounds like Rattlesnake is a rope. Tornado picked up some men fighting with Bowie knives, and they got tore up and spread out all over the state, I tell you what. Right, but this is the New York Times saying it. Why is the New York Times saying Because it sounds like that. They right. know it. They're, they're, doing, they're aware of it. Yes. So I said, I hope satirical. Probably not. This is the moment of yellow, yellow journalism. Remember the main. But look at it. Look at the other things we've talked about. There's... There's cannibalism there. People are eating this meat. There is the... Greasy bear meat. There's the poor Kentuckian that just got picked up by a whirlwind and slashed to pieces with his bowie knife because he's so much of an idiot. Fighting. I think they were yes, fighting. Yes, and they're fighting. They're... they're fighting with knives, and we don't even know why, but that's the most logical conclusion for the meteorological phenomena that is the meat shower. All right, this just says so much about what people were thinking about it. Now, this does sound like a story, but the Kentucky meat shower did happen. It happened. It There's happened. meat somewhere. Someone has meat. There is in um, uh, some museums. But so seven samples were examined by several scientists who confirmed two to be lung tissue, three to be muscular tissue, and two are said to be made of cartilage. Now, Dr. L.D. Kastenbein wrote in an 1876 edition of the Louisville Medical News that it was quite literally... A coordinated bout of projectile vulture vomit. No. No, vultures throw up when they're scared. So another scientist wrote, I am informed that it is not uncommon for buzzards thus to disgorge their overcharged stomachs, and that when in a flock one commences the relief operation, the others are excited to nausea, and a general shower of half-digested meat takes place. So the poor Kentuckians ate vulture vomit. And commented on it to the New York Times. And the New York Times. This is why we can't have nice things. But the New York (laughs) York Times ran with it. Who's to say someone wouldn't try it in Pennsylvania? Someone would definitely try it in Pennsylvania. I agree. I mean, anywhere. Someone would would try it in New York City. I say. But how they saw these people and how they represented them and these articles saying, "Oh, well, they were just like fighting with Bowie knives and got picked up by a whirlwind. Instead of going to Oz, they became a meat shower. Waste people." They're literally waste people. They're vulture vomit people. So that actually happened. For real. All right. Let's talk about something that makes me happy. Because vulture vomit grosses me out. Let's talk about Teddy Roosevelt. What's Teddy Roosevelt have to do with all this? You're dragging him in everything. I love him. I'm going to talk about him a little now. So when he was inaugurated, he was seen as being very progressive. He invited Booker T. Washington to the White House for dinner shortly after his inauguration. 
and people tried to defame him by saying maybe he should marry off one of those Roosevelt boys to Portia Washington. And this was like supposed to be an insult. Scandalous. But she's awesome. She was attending Wellesley College and I think that those would have been badass babies, but whatever. T.R. hated Southerners. He called them kennel filth and wrote of their unspeakable lowness. And I'll forgive him because they were kind of awful at the time. But he took office at the age of 42 after William McKinley was assassinated and was added to the ticket after being dubbed the hero of the Spanish and American War. And while he could claim a Southern pedigree because his mother was from Georgia, he did not really want one. And he saw the threat of redneck politics and it annoyed him. And therefore, so did Southern people. He believed that white Southern people had taken a wrong turn on the evolutionary ladder and they used bombast to conceal unhealthy traits. Southerners, he concluded, had contributed very, very little toward anything of which Americans are now proud. Man, he's just like, one, two, blow. (laughs) Uh, He rebuked an Arkansas governor for defending a lynch mob, and he said that Jefferson Davis was as much of a traitor as Benedict Arnold, which I think we can all agree on. However, one Georgia woman said that he had dishonored his mother's blood. Bless his heart. We're back to that old song and dance. And so knowing that T.R. really did buy into the myth of the blood and that this was a very popular conception at the time, we can look at his Rough Riders. Yes, I'm going to talk about the Rough Riders. I am. I'm doing it. We can look at his Rough Riders as being sort of this magic petri dish in which American manliness is going to be tested in war. And you have to look at it and see that, you know, he's chosen the people that he believes best represent the top stock in America. And it's Ivy League athletes and cowboys and Indians. And there was even a Jewish guy. (laughs) So he's broad minded. But we should note that there were no black men or real crackers in the company. And so Teddy believed that the frontier and the wilderness and hard living did cultivate and educate the blood, as we've mentioned. But But only the West. Only the West. Yes. The West was a proving ground and the South was a rubbish bin. Cesspool. Cesspool. So Nancy... I'm going to keep calling her Nancy because I feel like we're old buddies now. I have spent so much time with this book. Nancy says that Teddy's motto might as well have been work, fight, breed. And I think there's something to it. He believed that there was this duty that belonged to those with a good bloodline to contribute as many progeny to the national gene pool as possible. He believed that fitness as a sire was maintained through a strenuous life. War was necessary not only to build character, but to genuinely and literally reinvigorate the best qualities of the germ protoplasm of the American bloodline. And the germ protoplasm is a term that Teddy uses often in his writing, and he's referring to genes. Right, because as we've seen, like these ideas of breeding and people as stock and using horse terms and cattle terms and breeding terms related to this was extremely common. So he was really a champion for this, like, breed better Americans, make me more red-blooded men to take to war, blah, blah, blah. And he kind of had this idea that the gene pool was a public pool. 
and that we all needed to be mindful of peeing in it. And we needed to kick out all the people in the shallow end of the pool. Exactly. So the gen- to torture that metaphor a little more. Right, the genetically unfit were the largely the poor. You know, Davenport, this eugenicist at the time, right? That there were two major breeding grounds for degenerates: the hovel and the poor farm. Poor farm also being like a poorhouse or an asylum. So the hovel was a familiar image of the back country, off deep in the Appalachian Mountains, or the rural South. And there was much indiscriminate breeding going on there and lots of incest. I mean, you still see this stuff going around now. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, you're from West Virginia. You must have married your sister. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. That's a funny joke. So clever. It was used 200 years ago. Stop it. Get a new joke. Poorhouse was also very specifically Southern. Many in the South did not separate men and women where they stayed. And so this allowed them to mingle. And while the poor farm or the poor house was not a specifically Southern institution, the fact that they weren't segregated was. And so people housed here would be criminals and prostitutes and debtors and all of these idiots. And they just had all the sexual access to one another and they could just make as many little criminal prostitutes as they wanted to while no one was looking or while everyone was looking. I think everyone was looking. Hmm. And Davenport had a really strong anti-rural bias. He thought that the best and the brightest would move on to cities or more urban areas, at least, where they could be competitive and thrive. And the only people who would stay in these little backwater camps in the back of the woods were stupid and weak. So he believed just by living in these rural areas, they were proving that they couldn't hack it in mainstream society. But you can see through Davenport's writing about, like, the need for segregation and the idiot asylums and things like that, that the sexuality and promiscuousness of the unfit was a really big source of anxiety for society at large. And so they were sort of treated like human kudzu, brought in to solve the problem of losing ground. They staked claims and provided a path toward westward expansion, but now... These weeds were reproducing at such a rate that they stood poised to choke the hardy American forest planet and patiently tended through years of growth. This had to be stopped. But as we know from the South, kudzu can't be stopped. That's why they were treated like human kudzu. Three plans were hatched to weed out bad blood, and that was to segregate the unfit castrate criminals, and sterilize the diseased and degenerate class. One Michigan legislator had a fourth part to this plan that he wanted to put in place and suggested that they just kill all the idiots. Oh, good. And there was a professor who fumed that if society refused to execute criminals and tramps, they should at least not be allowed to propagate their kind. So how would you even be able to tell or classify these, quote, idiots and throw them in the asylum? Well, Henry Goddard developed a test to detect feeble-mindedness. Okay. And he developed a new classification that was previously kind of under the radar of people checking for this sort of thing. And that was the moron, which is a scientific term. 
<laughs> yeah, science. Yes, we're air quoting. And the moron was an especially troublesome little bugaboo because he or she could pass in polite society. But women were the real problem because they could go to work in good homes while hiding their status as morons. And they can use their womanly wiles and their mm-hmm. vigorous, shaped, shapely bodies mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and attract those good, upstanding boys. Yes. They pose a real threat, you see. And the fear of passing morons is really telling because it echoes a lot of previously documented fears of the passing woman. Come on. You know this. You live in the South. That girl can pass. Oh, uh, the mulatto. Yeah. That's still set. You the still one drop. Yes. One drop rule. Bright, being bright, all of these things. So there was a big fear that women who were the descendant of mixed race backgrounds could infiltrate white society and bring all of their genetic baggage to bear in the bloodlines of the aristocratic class. And you see this again way back in England when you get these stories of class interlopers, you know, these women that would seduce the lords of the manor while churning butter or whatever. But there's always been a fear of the domestic threat that women who could pass might pose. So I mean, what are they planning to doing all these women besides killing them all (laughs) well the largest group that was targeted with the moron classification was poor white women the female moron according to the diagnostics lacked forethought vitality or any sense of shame the best policy was to quarantine dangerous women during their fertile years that's a long time Mm -hmm. but you're right that is a long time so eager reformers let's sterilize them yep it was cheaper. No. It was cheaper. No. It was more effective. And you know what? What's great? Here's a great thing about this. If we just if we just sterilize them, whether they want it or not, we can just send them back to work when they're done, and they can do those menial jobs that we need them to do without posing a threat to our bloodline. This is disgusting. Oh, this worked out well. This is terrible. So we have the luxury of sending this person out to go do the menial jobs that no one wants to do. But then we get, you know, world wars and a depression and menial jobs suddenly become kind of a big deal. And we have to find a way to deal with this new leveling of the class system that's occurring. And the depression gives us the iconic figure of the forgotten man. Right. So Edwin Markham wrote in 1932, shall this man go hungry here in lands blessed by his honor Builded by his hands. Do something for him. Let him never be forgotten. Let him have his daily bread. He who has fed us. Let him now be fed. Let us remember his tragic lot. Remember or else ourselves be forgot. So there's an outcry to ensure that the person, the people who had been doing these jobs that none of us really wanted to do were taken care of. And just that the lower class was taken care of the forgotten man and this becomes such an important fixture in american rhetoric right but now with the great depression i mean like everyone becomes a waste right it's an indiscriminate force 
The depression was associated with waste, wasted lives, wasted land, human waste. The stock market crash unleashed a nightmarish downside to the much vaunted American dream, the unpredictable and unpreventable downward mobility. The traditional marks of poverty were now appearing everywhere. And that's a quote from Nancy Eisenberg Smith. But the lines between the classes were becoming more permeable, but in the worst way. And the American dream was like dead. It really was. It was on life support for certain. It seemed empty and pointless. Survival had become the necessary focus for a wide swath of America. The shutdown of Wall Street prompted one writer to compare it to an empty Egyptian tomb. I thought that was so interesting. Filled with the debris of delusions of false hopes. Other iconic symbols were also highly visible at the time, like bread lines and shuttered banks. And all of this sort of evoked the feeling of idleness. And it's like the germ of laziness had spawned this sort of national health crisis. And the whole nation, despite its best efforts, had become lazy. And there was also this sense that America had finally found its limits. The resources could not save those who cultivated them. You know, I mean, there are some iconic images I'm sure you've seen of like... Like the bread lines. Yeah, and people dumping out milk because they didn't have anyone who could buy it and like people were starving and we were throwing food away because the markets were collapsing and there was also this like idea that the land wasn't as limitless as we thought because the frontier was officially closed in 1936 and there was a solution offered for the widespread poverty facing the united states and this was the back to the land movement which aspired to send people like miners and factory workers from urban centers to rural areas out in the country and teach them how to live off the land and be self-reliant. And Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Heck yeah! You've been reading my book. Awesome. Oh, there was a little island in the government that became known as the Subsistence Homestead Division in 1933. And land was going to fix everything. They're saying go back... The most poor and destitute of people are there just because they're landless. That's all they need. Mm, it sounds so familiar, right? So the tenant farming system was very flawed. And this is sharecropping. This is what's going on at the time. And so one of the efforts of the subsistence homestead division was to kind of take the tenant farmers out of these circumstances and give them their own land in theory. But tenant farming was the way that most people were getting by at the time. And it was flawed because it depended on circumstances not improving for the tenants. The worse someone was doing, the more dependent they were on the lifeline that was offered by a landowner. The tenants, including women and children, provided very affordable, basically free labor to the landowner. They cultivated his land just to live on it. But the homestead program aimed to educate people on modern agrarian methods, food production, and settlement establishment. But there's also a psychological barrier that had to be crossed. Poor whites had to overcome the feeling that they were just trash, a breed lacking the capacity for change. And the homestead program would prove above all that poor whites were completely normal people. I'm guessing this is one of those really good on paper programs. It was very difficult to get it going of course it was really hard to make it happen fd this is like such a pipe dream it's there were a lot of bureaucratic roadblocks okay fdr just said let's make a new agency and so he did and he created the resettlement administration 
1935. And it was headed by an American with a truly fantastic name, Rexford G. Tugwell. Is his porn star name? I don't know, but I like it. So the resettlement administration explicitly targeted the rural poor. And it had more of a plan and less of a, come on, move away from your mining job and go off to Oklahoma. It'll be fun. No one's ever cried while they walked to Oklahoma before. Oh, that's a bad joke. It's a bad joke. I'm sorry. I can make it. But this was like aimed at people who were already kind of farming, already rural, more likely to take them up on the offer. And so they purchased submarginal land and moved tenants and offered relief to drought victims and sent out doctors, set up medical care for farmers, restored ruined lands, supervised camps of migrant workers, provided loans for improvement for modernization and other things like that and helped improve living conditions and also offered education for farm owners. And they built experimental communities, like little utopias. This is like the time of utopias. I want to do an episode. We're going to do one. We're going to do one and we're going to talk about Anaida. It's going to be awesome. But this challenged the pervasive perception that the poor were shiftless, lazy, and no account and turned this group into a politically visible constituency. Here's why I say the Depression gives us the forgotten man constituency. The silent majority. The real Americans. Real, hard-working Americans. And Joe Sixpack, too. Joe the plumber. And we, like I said, we see this still. Still in every political speech. On both sides of the aisle. On both sides. All the sides. So then we get Harry F. Byrd, who is a senator from Virginia. And he didn't like this way of thinking. He said that simple mountain people didn't deserve electricity refrigerators or even indoor privies. That's hogwash. Simple meant primitive. And primitive people were incapable of aspiring to a creditable way of life. Just continually reaffirming that you're stuck there. Mm. You're stuck in your glass. There's no way you can get out of that because it's in your blood. It's just you don't need more. What are you talking about? Other critics characterized those who sought help through programs set up by the RA as people who were willing to, quote, crawl into the impersonal lap of government dependency. Those guilty of crawling included hillbilly clay eaters, hoe wielders, that's a new one, that means backward tenant farmers looking for government handouts, the urban poor who see success in green pastures and desert-dwelling Indians. I'm glad we can keep coming up with derogative terms for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yep, we're good at that. So Tugwell was like, y'all are all so full of shit. He says that rugged individualism really meant the regimentation of the many to benefit the few. The New Deal's mission was to sh- make individualism available to those ordinarily deprived of it, freeing the many from their virtual imprisonment at the hand of the few. And there was a massive class leveling at this time. The rural poor, or white trash, were still set apart from the rest of the poor, however, because the signature achievement of the New Deal, Social Security, expressly excluded farm workers. Really? That's shocking to me. I did not know that. Oh, you need to read Fear Itself. It's all about Southern Democrats, and they're crazy. It's so good. But I've heard you talk about it for hours and hours. But it's 48 hours long or something. How can I have possibly even covered half of it? Anyway, pause, go listen to it. It's really good. But there's also another important figure at this time named Howard Odom. 
And he was sort of an early ethnologist who went to the South and said, I need to figure this out because it's weird. (laughs) And he sort of defined the character of the South. He wrote about this blatant disregard for resources, including people, and the way in which people in the region were kept out of school and deprived of basic services. And that was huge in and of itself because this was not the way we we talked about the South. We talked about it as if it was all self-imposed and they just didn't want any more than what they already had. And he took pains to chronicle the South's self-image. He came up with the term, a gone with wind and nostalgia. I like it. I do too. It's still there today. It is. And he said that Southerners really just wanted a courageous telling of truth about the South. And he said that he was tired of encountering this defense complex and that he was also tired of unending ridicule complacency and ignorance and above all he was tired of the poverty odom believed that the straitjacket states rights had suffocated southern progress long enough and this was sort of his way of saying like we have to get some government programs down there we have to start doing something with these people they need our help on a federal level right because you have like a virginia congressman Talking about his people, his constituents, saying, "Oh, they don't need electricity. They don't need. In, they don't need a private bathroom. They don't need toilets." It's insane. So we do get the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is huge. It is a huge boon to the area. It really does amazing things, like bookmobiles and education reform and all these fabulous things. As this is instituted, it becomes evident that it's going to be really, really difficult to dislodge this cultural prejudice. So he sends out a survey to kind of other academics in the anthropology, social science region of academia and ask them kind of to talk about what they think of when they hear the words poor white. And the most common response that comes back is shiftless. Other words are purposeless, hand to mouth, lazy, unambitious, no account, no desire to improve themselves and inertia. I mean, these are the same types of characteristics that were used to describe these people centuries beforehand. And maybe now, too. We still hear this. But Odom argued that poor whites had a culture that was their own and important and that it could be used to help them reach a more fulfilling way of life. And he said that these things, their specific knowledge, could be considered folkways. And he didn't think that they had to stay where they were. But he also didn't think that it was necessary for them to emulate the existing white middle class in order to move up in the world. They could use their own specialized knowledge and folk values. They did need access to education, but this would allow them to become self-sufficient. So in the 1930s, the forgotten man and woman gained cultural currency as a symbol of the fight for survival. But poor whites haunted the South. The problem was not no one knows what to do with him. It was no one wants to see him as he really is, as one of us, an American. So you see over the last several centuries, since people have been living in America and before in England, they've been describing this poor lower class people as lazy as others shiftless unwilling to work and i think as important as those adjectives as the fact that it's cast as like a over there 
other people problem. Like it's something that's just in them. It's not something that they share with us or that we could teach out of them. It's almost biological. It's in their blood. Right. And you have to look at that and say, oh, this is just a stereotype. But there may be a little validity to it. I'm not liking this. Of course, there is some hyperbole in these descriptions. But that idea of the germ of laziness that existed within the South, there may be something to that. So often people would get something called ground itch, where they'd get this kind of tingling, sore area on their feet. Then they'd start to get this cough. And then they would start to really fit their stereotypes. They would become exhausted, unable to work. Lubbers. Unable to use their mind like they were able to. Adults neglected their fields. Children grew pale and listless. These people also developed these grossly distended abdomens and stomachs. And, quote, angel wings. That sounds nice. Uh, It's their shoulder blades sticking out from being emaciated and hunched over. I should have known better. And they would also get this dull look with their bugged out fish eyes. So in 1902, around this time, prior to the Great Depression, the South is still in utter disarray. Charles Stiles, the zoologist from New York. New York City. Uh huh. Was sent by the Department of Agriculture to help with animal health. And he observed these things. And he wanted to solve this riddle. He felt like there was a biological cause for this. But he didn't think it was genetic. Not necessarily. So he began to interview and talk to people and observe and to collect samples. And he discovered. That a lot of people in the South were infected with a parasite. Seriously? A hookworm. A hookworm. Right. So Garland Brinkley, a professor of public health, stated that hookworm disease worsened in the years following the Civil War thanks to deteriorating conditions and economic setbacks, and that the rise of those parasites only served to slow recovery even further. Following the war, poverty and hookworms were even more closely linked. While wealthy and city-bred Southerners in the late 19th and early 20th century wore shoes and used bedpans and lived in more urban environments, your more modest social standing often went barefoot and used just latrines or just went shit in the woods. Like a bear. Exactly. They didn't have toilets. Okay. Many were renters, Mm -hmm. and so would just live on the land that they were able to afford. They were sharecroppers, Mm -hmm. like you were talking about. And one quote from a landlord at the time said, just let them go to the bushes like they've always done. Oh, oh, that's cute. He sounds nice. Now the poor conditions, animals, raining, flood led to the spread of this parasite. Its eggs were in the stool. Mm-hmm. This one's going to get kind of a little gross for a second. Hold on. Now, Whenever one was walking around barefoot, the larva of the parasite can corkscrew into your foot. It's making me want to get put on shoes right now. And it would get into your bloodstream. Now, people often called this itchy sore they would get, ground itch or dew itch, Mm -hmm. because the larva would crawl up the grass with the morning dew. Now, it would travel through the bloodstream to the lungs, where it was then coughed up and would get into your gut. 
So you like cough it up and kind of swallow it. So it goes from your lungs to your like down your digestive tract. Into your small intestines. Okay. Yuck. Where it would then mature into a full adult parasitic worm, attach itself to the lining of the small intestines, and literally suck the vitality out of you. Okay, wait, I have a question. Like when there are a when it's a whole worm, when it's a when it's grown up worm, can you see it or is it still microscopic? Oh no, it's huge. How huge? Oh, it's pretty big. Like inches big? Oh yuck. Oh yuck. Oh yuck. That's so terrible. This is terrible. Okay. Parasites would lay up to ten thousand eggs a day. But the eggs can't like the eggs can't do in the body. They they you're not gonna have like a whole colony of hookworms living in your small Oh, intestine. you will have a colony, but they aren't hatched from those eggs. They have to go through that life cycle. Oh, so you poop them out. You poop them out. And you don't have toilets. You don't have proper rich latrines. So it just goes everywhere. So they when they lay your, their eggs in your intestines, then you poop the eggs out, and then somebody steps in the eggs, and the larva goes up your foot, and then you're, then it goes to your lungs, then you cough it up, and then it, you swallow it, and then you get another hookworm, and then you have like a whole hookworm party in your small intestines. Exactly. And hookworm parties are not fun for the people hosting. No. I mean, they're sucking blood out of you. They're causing anemia. They're causing malnourishment in already malnourished people. So this is your setup for failure. Like you're you're not going to feel like going out and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps at this point. I mean, you have pregnant women that are miscarrying because they're so malnourished. You have severely anemic adults that do not have the energy to get up and go plow the field. You have children who are so anemic they aren't properly developing. They aren't hitting puberty. They aren't going to their proper stature. Their brains aren't developing appropriately. You literally have this worm causing the stereotype that everyone has been associating with these poor white trash. So there was a 1926 study of Alabama school children that found that the greater the number of worms that students harbored, the lower their IQ. The authors wrote, One has the impression that the hookworm-infected child is living in another entirely separate world and is only remotely in contact with the everyday world about him. It sounds like a, I mean, this is a horror movie. This is horrible. I mean, they're vampiric parasites. It's, yeah, making them into zombies who are barely in touch with reality. Literally. This sounds, it sounds terrible. So how do we get rid of the worm? Well, that's a great question. And so Rockefeller. Like the Rockefeller? Like the Rockefeller. Okay. He was looking to establish some sort of philanthropic foundation. As you do. And so as he heard about the germ of laziness and these ideas that were going around, he thought this might be a good cause. And now Southerners found this idea offensive and thought this Yankee with all his money was just trying to come and embarrass them. That is so Southern. This carpet bagger coming down here telling me how to shit. But in 1909, Rockefeller gave $1 million. That's, that's amazing. That's so much money. I don't know what the math is on that, but it's like a billion. It's like a billion. <laughs> so he established the Rockefeller Sanitary Commission for the Eradication of Hookworm Disease. And now he appointed a Southern professor, Wycliffe Rose. That's a good Southern name. I give him credit for realizing that he needed an ambassador to this foreign nation. This southern professor, 
Well, I mean, he is someone that would speak the language. <laughs> that's that's half true. <laughs> so they began with this anti-hookworm propaganda campaign. And one person, Thomas Clark, recalled whenever he was young in Mississippi in 1912 that the Winston County Journal ran a blood-curdling illustration of a greatly enlarged female hookworm that resembled a diamondback rattlesnake more than a worm. I became so frightened at the prospect of being tested that I was constipated for a week. Google it. You'll be constipated, too. And so they sent out young, newly minted doctors straight out of medical school into the country. Oh, I love this idea. You so would have been this. You would have been this guy. Oh, they would arrive on horseback with microscopes in tow. No. It's so good. Ready to test the population. We are the knights of medicine here to save you from the germ of laziness, my lady. One historian says they were like itinerant evangelists riding across the South carrying this medicine and message. Now they were going into the deep deep rural areas the true backwoods and backwaters right like it was even stated that some places were so isolated they still spoke elizabethan english that's amazing and the townspeople often treat this as an event you know, oh did they food, it was to say they brought a covered dish they brought a covered dish yeah. i know they did <laughs> they would give lectures on how to build a proper outhouse or a sanitary privy if you were tested positive, you were sent home with Epsom salt and thymol. Wait, Super poisonous, yeah. dangerous, don't take it. Okay, so, but they didn't do that forever. Yeah, they switched to carbon tetrachloride. That's Super poison. poisonous, <laughs> dangerous, don't do it. Okay, well, best of intentions, best of intentions. It truly was. Okay. So this program did not completely cure hookworms, but it started the conversation. It brought awareness. It established the first network in the south of rural public health clinics that's huge i mean that like it's easy to look back and be like that crazy rockefeller sending out doctors on horseback with microscopes blah blah blah. but no like it matters it actually matters that people have access to good health care right and this continued raging on for several more decades but as one historian said the reason hookworm is not a scourge today is because people live in cities wear shoes eat better than they did and have indoor plumbing Those factors, more than anything else, are responsible for the fact that the hookworm is no longer a major problem in this country. And we do still see it, you know, especially after, like, flooding or anything like that. Like, the time I saw, I've seen it was after, like, a hurricane flooded a trailer park. And the septic tanks were flooded. And so they, all the The stool was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, And then we had a bunch of cases of kids with hookworm. But now, by but you can treat it now. Oh yeah, and you don't have to give them poison. True. Okay, I'm just making sure. <laughs> now, by 1985, it's all but disappeared, except for those really rare cases. Now, interestingly, Hoyt Blakely, an associate professor of economics at the University of Michigan, looked at the census data from the early to mid 20th century and the Rockefeller Sanitary Commission's data to compare educational and economic games in places where hookworm eradication did and did not take place. And he found an increase in school attendance, increase in literacy, relation to hookworm reduction, and also discovered those effects seemed to extend into adulthood, with better educated children growing up to be higher-earning adults. It's pretty profound. Peter Holtz, the dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor, said that neglected tropical diseases like hookworm not only occur in settings of poverty, 
but they also cause poverty. Hookworms are definitely a major factor in holding back progress in the American South. So we've eradicated hookworms. We've had the class leveling experience of the Great Depression. But we know that we can't leave well enough alone and that we're not going to put down our stereotypes and go home because we're Americans and we just don't do that shit. No, we love our stereotypes. And so we have to do something new now that they are no longer biologically unfit and now that we really can't make fun of them for not having jobs. Damn it. Damn it. And so we must create what Nancy Eisenberg White calls the cult of the country boy. And I adore that title. And I think that the poster child for this cult, this charismatic leader, if you will, is Elvis. I love it. I love it too. So Elvis was a hillbilly with sex appeal, which was incredibly transgressive as the sexuality of the low class white trash people had been a menace to society for years. We know I'm just thinking about like some of his earlier movie roles, like King Creole and stuff like that. Like he would play that like down as luck, downtrodden guy that would work his way up. Right. And he would almost sex always have a love interest who is a higher class woman than he was who was having some kind of transgressive relationship with this boy from the wrong side of the tracks and so he was this figure who was definitely taboo but somehow made his way into very polite americans living rooms on their television don't look at the dancing forest i started moving my hips he also, you know, made it onto the walls of lots of nice girls' bedrooms. Were they so nice? Yes. They were sweet sweethearts. My mom loved Elvis. My mom says she didn't like the Beatles because she liked Elvis. It was that kind of allegiance. But he kind of capitalized on the fear of trashy sexuality. And he made enough money to be upper class. But instead of, like, assimilating... He just bought more trashy shit. That's right. You've been to Graceland. I've been to Graceland. I have seen the Jungle Room. I know what that place is about. He had a pet chimpanzee that used to ride shotgun in his pink Cadillac. This man was trashy. In the best way possible. I love Elvis. So you have this rising star sex symbol. And meanwhile, back in Camelot. This is also the moment that we get our presidential sex symbol we get JFK. Oh, I thought you were going to say Nixon. <laughs> Nobody's ever called Nixon a sex symbol ever. Not one person. You're the first. That one person. Oh, that one person. But we've got Camelot. We've got JFK. And he's undoubtedly his own kind of sex symbol. And he has his own kind of scandals and his own kind of whispers. But he's decidedly upper class. Like, there's no questioning that pedigree. And he's decidedly Bostonian and not in rural hillbilly. Right, he's a Kennedy. He's a Kennedy. The bluest of the blue bloods. And then he's assassinated. Oh, yeah. And he has to leave his crown to someone. And who does it fall to? A Texan. A Texan. The accidental president. The uncompromisingly earnest and apologetically Southern. You mean unapologetically? No, I mean apologetically. <laughs> the apologetically Southern LBJ. So like Elvis, LBJ remembers his roots. And he tries to be proactive about apologizing for them <laughs> and making things better 
The Great Society. Yes. He envisions a great society which targets rural Americans living in Appalachia primarily and also urban blacks. And he implements a vast array of programs that eliminate poll taxes and kind of level voting rights, promote education, fund health care, and make efforts to eradicate poverty. And like during the time that he is trying to get these great society programs going, he is going to Appalachia and like sitting on people's front porches and talking to them about what would help them. And these are powerful images. And a lot of times because of the, you know, whole Vietnam War thing and his important role in civil rights legislation and the visibility of those two conflicts, this is left out. Like this is just not something you see, but it's incredibly important to his legacy and his character. Now, the time that he was inaugurated, he was still regarded as somewhat of a regional figure, and that region being the South. Texas. Texas. <laughs> but he said, I do not believe that the Great Society is the ordered, changeless, sterile battalion of ants. He believed that mindless conformity, whether Soviet or Southern in style, was stifling and repressive. And you have to remember, this is a man who went to war with communists, and he's got the same sentiment toward this rigid class system that the South clings to. And he was kind of still, even though he's got these very radical ideas, he's still painted as being sort of backward. But he was one of the first people to urge the government to get involved with a space race and make going to the moon a national priority. Yet people would still say he's not a very forward-thinking guy. And he openly opposed this empty rhetoric that was a staple of the Dixiecrat lot, which embraced the poor white and yet encouraged racism. And this time you start to see the shows that I grew up watching on TV land. You know, things like Beverly Hillbillies, Andy Griffith, and the spinoff Gomer Pyle. Like, who saw that coming? <laughs> I mean, things like, things like Green Acres, things like Petticoat Junction. And there were so many shows that depicted the South in this, like, idealized, if backward, way. Yeah, they did. They traded in these terrible stereotypes and really exaggerated the silliness and absurdity of these people. And they went back to the same things you would see, you know, in, like, things that were written about Davy Crockett when he was alive. Wrestled a bear? Oh, God. The Cracker Dictionary. You remember the Cracker Dictionary? It was a farcical, satirical thing written at the time Davy Crockett was alive, and it defined things like cracker and like was written bad dialect and all of that, but it just came to life again when you look at the Clampets and you have oversex, promiscuous, but naive Ellie Mae and Granny with her gun and her rocking chair and Jed who can't figure out how to work a doorbell and Jethro who's an idiot and you have all these things. Every stereotype you can all imagine. All the stereotypes. They eat possums. But of course people thought it was like clean and wholesome fun. Oh yes, these were our noble ancestors. This kind of like evolutionary throwback. Again, our contemporary ancestors. They're not bright enough to be manipulative. They're guileless. And they don't care about material possessions. Black gold. Texas tea. Yeah, but they don't care, right? They moved to Beverly Hills, but they don't get it. They don't don't know how to do it right. They're still going to do it the same way. Defenders of the show argue that they were doing a service 
to rural Americans by, you know, helping them acquire this wholesome image. One thing I think is interesting is thinking of like the show Green Acres, Mm -hmm. where it's like, I'm going to leave Manhattan and I'm going to go to the form life. It's what's for me. But then also, you know, you have that like push and pull of city life versus country life and the comparison of the two. It's so interesting to look back on in this context and see what it was showing. It was showing like, hey, the country life isn't so bad. But it was also depicting everyone as like these stereotypes. Right. You couldn't be a person who lived in the city. You had to be the most materialistic person who ever lived in the city. And you couldn't be a country person. You had to be a comically naive country person. And so as all of this is happening and America's going, maybe hillbillies aren't so bad, we get this massive influx of media coverage of the civil rights movement. And this is being televised. This is before Vietnam. And this is in people's living rooms on a very regular basis. And there's a great deal of anxiety among the lower class white people, the white trash set, that if racial boundaries become permeable, they're going to be even worse off than they are now. They're going to be even lower than they are right now in public opinion. But that is not just from this time period. It's something you see all the way back to before the founding of this country. People were worried that if you lost that slave class, or in this case, the black community that was considered lower than everybody else, you would lose something of yourself because you didn't have someone that you were better than. But the reality seemed imminent at this point. It's always been a potential threat to identity, but at this moment, it is an imminent threat. It is right there. It is coming. It is in the national spotlight. And so these people are very anxious and they need leadership and they need a voice of reason. And so it becomes a political strategy to exploit the hillbilly vote to sort of energize this hillbilly base. And so one example of this is the Arkansas governor, Orville Faubus. Orville Faubus. Yes, that's his name. Fantastic. And he was a redneck politician. He refused to like clean his act up in order to trade in polite societies. And he made a deal of being like one of the low down people being just another redneck Arkansas. And he exploited and inflamed passions of the people in his constituency that were of a lower class and really capitalized on them. And he had some genuine honest to God, redneck looking backwoods people in his family that were photographed by time magazine and he dressed like a redneck and talked like a redneck. It was it was an interesting character. And he was a staunch segregationist. And that's why this moment when Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas was integrated was absolutely crucial to creating the picture that we would have in our heads of what civil rights meant. Because he was at the helm of the state at this moment, and he was not going to give in. It's why we have to bring in the National Guard, et cetera, et cetera. That was interesting when I went to Little Rock to interview for a job. And that was kind of like the one historical thing hmm. they had to kind of reference. Yeah. You know, they're just talking about the community and stuff. And they're like, then we have the uh, Central High School Museum that you can visit. Oh, 
Thanks. I'm glad it's a museum. I'm glad it's commemorated. But it's just interesting that that's like the one historical kind of element they had in Little Rock to discuss. Yes. This is, you know, that thing that happened here this this one time. Mm, Yeah. And there were these really iconic images of the first day of school for the black students who were going to be attending Central High in which you see like a very dignified buttoned up black girl walking and a very hostile looking white girl with her mouth just curled in this grimace screaming at her as she enters the school with her books. And this kind of became the face of what was happening in Arkansas. And the press did not let these characters, these cracker characters pass without commenting on them because we were bringing in national media from the coast, you know, from both coasts where the real cities are to the heart of backward America. And so we get these descriptions, which sound like they could have been written at any time since the founding of the country. Many in overalls, tobacco-chewing white men. The New York Times describes a scrawny red-necked man. A lot of rednecks, slattern housewives, harpies. Hell, look at them. They're poor white trash, mostly. Time described vacant-faced women in curlers and loose-hanging blouses. A rock-throwing waitress with a tattooed arm was mentioned. The Times Literary Supplement acknowledged that it was the ugly faces of the redneck crackers, tar heels, and other poor white trash that would be remembered from Central High. I mean, so without a doubt, these iconic images really played into the ideas of stereotypes. I mean, this perfectly fits in, especially in the Northern view of the poor, idiotic, unintelligent, white trash that just don't know their head from a hole in the ground. Well, don't worry. The good people of Arkansas did swoop in to clear it up and make it clear to the rest of the nation that these are not just this, these are not normal Arkansas people. They tried at least. Normal Arkansas people go to church, they pay their taxes, they're good people. These are those other people. And so then you get this idea that hatefulness and spitefulness and meanness and all these other things mark trash you start seeing things like a redneck is a southerner who's been raised on hate and it becomes a specific designation within the regional identity but lbj said that racism could be very dangerous to white people too because they wouldn't notice what was happening to them he said i'll tell you what's at the bottom of it if you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man he won't notice that you're picking his pockets Hell, give somebody somebody to look down on, and he'll empty his pockets for you. And that's exactly what they did in the Civil War. So the redneck was hateful. There had to be another side of the coin, right? And that side was the good old boy. And this, this idea of the good old boy had enormous political capital. You mean the Dukes of Hazard? Basically. Just good old boy. Never meaning no harm. <laughs> You know, they don't show it anymore because of the rebel flag on the car. Well, it's called the General Lee. What other kind of flag would it have? I'm just saying. I think they don't show it anymore because it was called the General Lee and it was a major component of the show and there's no way you can crop that out. Can you imagine there's like a big black box over the car every time it's doing like stunts. <laughs> They're sliding across it. It's like animated for a second. They're little cartoons. But 
There was an interesting passage written by an Australian observer who noted that Americans wanted a democracy of manners, which was different than a real democracy. And what he meant is that voters would accept huge discrepancies in wealth, but at the same time, they expected their leaders to cultivate the appearance of being no different from the rest of us. We needed a representative who would be of the upper class, but be able to at least emulate or identify with people who are not. You can really see that with the election of former president Jimmy, Jimmy Carter. Carter. Jimmy Carter. I've met Jimmy Carter. He's fabulous. <laughs> and, you know, there was a danger, of course, if you elected real trash to a high-ranking position, that the trash might leak out. But you could effectively put on the identity of being trashy or you being low class. Put a little trash on you. Rub it on you. like. like Get like, owed to trash. Yeah, it's just a little whiff of it. And that can be incredibly politically advantageous. I think they sell some of that in most gas station bathrooms. Is that what that is? That horny, horny goat weed. <laughs> Something called a French tickler, I'm not sure. I don't sure. think we need that. So Jimmy Carter wanted to trade on this. He understood the power of it. Now, despite the fact that he was in reality a relation of both George Washington and the Queen of England, so having a very nice bloodline, this one. He capitalized on his peanut farmer charm and his everyman cachet. And so he, when he was running against Carl Sanders, he put together these ads. And he also dubbed Carl Sanders Cufflink Carl in order to paint him as an out-of-touch lawyer who didn't understand. His gold cufflinks. His fancy. I don't know if they were gold. They might have been diamonds for all I know. But They um, probably were blood diamonds. Blood diamonds. But his ads featured a closed country club door. And there was a stern voiceover that said, People like us aren't invited. We're too busy working for a living. I think I've heard your dad say that. My dad does say that. And I don't know if he knows he's quoting a Jimmy Carter ad or if he is purposely quoting a Jimmy Carter ad and realizing that I don't get the joke. Let's call him and ask. It's it's too late. My dad's been asleep please get for your seven. Dad on the show? Oh my god! One day, Jacob. One day. I love Samantha's redneck dad. My dad's <laughs> not a redneck. He's a red bone. It's different. Get your jab straight. But we see this like at this moment we're like, ooh, these people can vote. Brilliant. Let's make them all vote for me. And this has not stopped. So we have Jimmy Carter, the peanut farmer, who is super in touch with what it means to work for a living. And then we have Reagan, who might not be a real-life good old boy, but boy, can he play one on TV. He's an actor. He can assume the role. He's a chameleon. Well, he always played the cowboy. Yes, he he had that like built-in in everyone's subconscious. He is the cowboy. He's going to come save you. Ride you off into the sunset in Reaganomics and tear down that wall. Exactly. Hallelujah. Praise the Republicans. What? Are you okay? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I have a knee-jerk reaction. Well, Nancy, what now? But so Reagan does this whole president thing, and then the natural heir to his presidency ascends to the throne. We get aged up. But then, but Jacob, but then. The coolest guy on the block. The coolest cat in town. The pauper steals the throne from the prince, and Washington clutches its collective pearls. Bill motherfucking Clinton comes 
up from Arkansas and somehow gets in the White House despite all of his white trashiness. Or because of it. Well, Bill, Bill's had a rough time of it. Bill really was probably like the first honest to God white trash candidate we've ever had. And I say we, I say we with full enthusiasm, knowing that that is my stock. But he like, you know, grew up with a single mother. He had a stepfather who beat her and was a used car salesman. There was, you know, a time when he was living primarily with his grandparents while his mom went back to school after he was born. He had a true experience as a impoverished kid in a weird blended family situation and really did kind of pull himself up by his bootstraps. So he was an interesting case. And he also had a little bit of that taboo white trash sexuality thing going on that got him in so much trouble. He was channeling Elvis. Let's he, blame Elvis. Well, he George H. Dub hired a Elvis impersonator to crash one of his rallies once. And Clinton thought it was hilarious and kept hiring him. He's amazing. such a dick. And he's so amazing and I love him. It was like they try everything they tried to make bad about him wouldn't stick until they were like, let's talk about how he is breeding more of his kind and threatening the great bloodline of the American democracy. Let's make it a sex scandal. And somehow the sex scandal stuck. Who can believe it? It's not like that's what we've been afraid white trash was going to do to America for all these years. All of the prophecy was true. <laughs> Thanks, Kinstar. Thanks. So we have Bill and we do have the fallout and the people freaking out. But let's go back to our first good old boy president. Lyndon B. Johnson. That's the one. So to me, he really is the story of the ascendancy of the lower class Southern population to be on the national stage. So let's take a look at what that is. Let's take a look at Inauguration Day in 1965. James Reston, the New York Times, wrote, Here was a man speaking of both the faith in the frontier and the new frontier of science. Here was a man who spoke every word as if it was his last. Nobody watching him, up close, could doubt his sincerity. He was the dramatization of the American dream, the poor country boy at the pinnacle of the world. And Nancy Eisenberg-Smith goes on to say, the country boy might be enjoying a moment in the sun just then, but he knew in his heart that his place among the power elites was not really secured, that he was not fully accepted. A country boy might at any moment reveal some telltale sign of white trash character. He might say something inappropriate. He could never conceal that artless draw or the dust of the sticky red clay. Indelible marks of class identity were forever stamped on him no matter how far he wandered from the inhospitable land of his birth. And today we don't remember Lyndon B. Johnson as the realization of the American dream. We remember his follies. We remember the Gulf of Tonkin incident. We remember that he got us into Vietnam. We don't remember LBJ as the man who assumed power on a plane after the president was shot. We remember the things he did wrong and the grievous errors that he made and him being this kind of like stodgy, shifty character. He's a caricature. He, When Donald Trump was inaugurated, people said, oh, well, he's going to be just another Lyndon B. Johnson. And I found that incredibly insulting, having read on Lyndon B. Johnson. <laughs> but his legacy is not what it should be. And I wonder how much of that has to do with the idea that he didn't deserve what he found himself presented with, that he didn't earn it, that he was an accidental president. 
And I wonder how much of that has to do with him being white trash. Well, that's what you can look at speaking to people that would consider themselves that way. You know, talking about these stories, the beginning, a lot of these stories were collected in the 50s and 60s. This was the same time we've been talking about. This is the time of transition. This is the time when people are, with the help of these government programs, the help of the Great Society and the GI Bill, and they are coming out of this poverty with the elimination of hookworms. There is a huge generation gap. In this great book called The Ghosts of the Cumberland that was published in the 1960s, he was talking to people about those differences between the middle generation, the generation that grew up with families that knew hunger, that knew scarcity, and lack of any technology, lack of electricity, lack of toilets, saying that there was a very strong memory of all of these things, and one that they hoped the next generation would avoid, also a memory they hoped that this new generation could call back on. They were told these stories, such as Taylor Poe, and other folk tales by the older generations in order to hope to inform them of these events, of this situation that they were in. Okay, so I am in a weird position where my sisters are 14 and 18 years older than I am, and... My dad grew up in rural North Louisiana during the 1960s. So he's of this generation. And I have a great reverence for his experience. And I understand what this person is trying to convey in his writing. The things my dad experienced growing up like he did are very dear to me. And I remember one day when I was pregnant with my first child, having the realization that he was not going to grow up a blue collar kid. And being like a little freaked out about it and like being hormonal at the time and crying because he was not going to have that experience. And it's such a part of my identity. It's such a part of who I am and how I see myself. My dad was the oldest of five boys and he's in his 70s and he grew up in a house without insulation. They had one stove in the house, a little potbelly stove, and that was responsible for heating the entire house. They didn't have indoor plumbing. And uh, when he was in high school, he worked all summer once to get the materials to put a ceiling in his room. And he talks about having to go out to the outhouse at night. And use the Sears catalog. Yeah, he talks about that too. <laughs> talks about that a lot. A lot. <laughs> I delight in that story. I, I feel so much pride in that story. I remember once I said to my sister something about us being like red bone or mixed. We are. We're a little bit of everything. And she was like, don't talk about that. And I remember getting so mad at her because I was like, but that's who we are. We have such a weird, weird background. Like it deserves to be acknowledged. And it, it never felt like something to overcome to me. My dad was the brownest kid that attended his high school. It was before integration. I mean, he, his family is very, very dark-complected, and they are you know, a mix of Native American and Spanish and lots of stuff, lots of things. We're not exactly sure. I need to do one of those ancestry kits. But you know, he encountered a massive amount of prejudice. He's Catholic. That also didn't go over well. But I look at everything that I've come to expect my life to have, and I'm just floored at what he was able to do and I think that's the key thing that he's talking about when he records this is like this how deep that memory feels it feels like my experience it didn't happen to me but it feels 
like it did. I mean, I can relate. I feel like I've, I feel that way as well, you know? I mean, I've been around for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) 13 years today, actually. That's true. But it's like, I I feel like I have learned a lot from his experience and it really has, you know, kind of opened my eyes to those ideas. Like, even though my grandmother and grandfather grew up in similar situations, they just never spoke as candidly (laughs) as your father does. Or as colorfully. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I mean, I hear those stories from my mom, too. Last time I went home, I made a point to ask her about some of the the stories that she'd heard about our family. And she talked about, you know, my great-grandmother going down to the creek to do wash for three different families, which was incredible. She was also a nurse back then. And then my grandmother ended up being the editor of a newspaper without having graduated high school. Really cool women in my family. But it lacks the that feeling of anxiety that I have about what my dad lived through. Like, I feel like my dad really did achieve something just by surviving to adulthood and getting out. Like, I mean, they used to fight. (laughs) They used to fight. And like my great grandfather had a scar on his throat where he had had his throat slit by a man in a fight. And I'm amazed that he is, as normal and well-adjusted, and that's not much. Sure yeah, that? he's not, I'm not saying mm, okay. he's, but okay. he's normal and well-adjusted-ish, and, you know, that he survived this. It's kind of amazing. Like, I feel like this, like it's a badge of honor that he got through that experience. But it is important that those stories and those ideas are passed on, because as we always talk about, our stories are who we are. You know, these stories tell us about the culture we come from, even as everything's being so homogenized now. We can look back and see that and see where we come from and the truth of our past. And it's important that these stories are passed on. And you know, in this book, they were talking about how usually it's the grandparents that are taking care of the kids. And you know, this time, the grandparents from the 1800s. And they're telling stories of how they grew up. And it's it's important for the new generations, the ones that will break out of that poverty cycle, to know what came before them, kind of as we do when we talk to your dad. I think it's also important that we remember that there really is population behind the idea of the forgotten man. That that's not just a talking point for stump speeches. These people, my people really have put blood, sweat, and tears into creating a home for themselves in America. And that's not unique to white trash. That's unique to all the colors of the trash (laughs) that we want to melt together and make something great. And so I think it's interesting that we see these ghosts coming back or these creatures coming back in these stories and finding these people who are just trying to survive and demanding their pound of flesh Because I think we still see that in some ways today. Right. As one informant from the time said, things just aren't the same now as they were back in those days. Even if we don't see things today, I believe they did see them in olden times. The things they were afraid of, they weren't just a story. No, they weren't just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen